0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 71. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about journeying through Latin American theology with Dr. Octavio Esqueda, who is the director of the PhD and EDD programs in educational studies and the professor of Christian higher education at Biola University. Team members on the episode from the two cities includes Grace Sangalang Ng and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So, carrying on with our series on cultural identity, today Dr. Esqueda provides both a personal reflection on his own journey theologically and also a helpful historical overview of the influence of Christianity on Hispanic cultures and the diversity of Christian reflection that developed over the centuries. And so, in this episode, there's a nice combination of the historical and the anecdotal. What did you think of this conversation, Grace?
1: I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Skeda, personally, because he is my dissertation chair. So it's always fun getting to hear more about his research, as usually I'm the one telling him about mine. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, and I learned so much from him, um, just learning about the history of Latin American theology. And I really enjoyed his perspective of seeing faith as holistic, you know, looking at both Not just the like vertical dimensions, but also looking at the horizontal dimensions and also being able to do theology in community um, and how we all have cultures that inform our perspectives. And part of it is just being aware of how our cultures inform our perspectives. I really appreciated that point that he brought out. Also, um, to think about just how our corporate identity is really important in understanding how the Holy Spirit works I think was really helpful for me to hear about because um, I think a lot of times in America we are so extremely highly individualistic that um, we don't really look at the whole communal aspect of things. So I really appreciated um, how Dr. Escada showed how the Holy Spirit really works in community.
0: And here's our conversation with Dr. Escada. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Esqueda.
2: You're very welcome. I'd like to be with all of you.
0: So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your own personal journey through Latin American theology?
2: Sure. Well, I, I was born and raised in Guadalajara, Mexico, in a very strong uh, Roman Catholic background. One memory I have uh, from that time and this close relationship with, with theology and, and religion and God is when I was seven years old, I, I bought myself a Bible. Remember the Pope went to Mexico and I had this Bible that is still is in my parents' house. Uh, so I always had this inclination to towards God and religion, but it was not until I was a, a kid, about 19 years old, that I was invited to a vacation Bible school through a, a local Bible church, and that's where I accepted Christ as my my savior. So I grew up in that uh, evangelical church. My parents also became believers. Uh, Interestingly, in Latin America, when somebody becomes a Protestant, we say we became a Christian, even though we were Roman Catholics. So even Protestants are called Christians. So I I would say I became a Christian when I was a a, a kid. my, father's, my parents suffered a lot of persecution, especially my, my father. Uh, when he accepted Christ, his own mom started calling him the donkey or the animal. She said, you leave the church, you are like, like a beast, like an animal uh, to us. So that was uh, our, my, my, my journey and something that really marked my desire to know more about God. Uh, I, I remember when I was 15, my grandmother died. And that was the last time that my parents' family gathered together. And my uncle, who was a very influential Catholic priest in the city, told my father that he had brought disgrace to the family for becoming a Protestant. And then my father said, well, I did not become a Protestant. I met Christ. And I can show you in the Bible why I believe what I believe. And then my uncle stopped him and said, you are nobody to teach me. All of you Protestants are ignorant. Uh, I studied philosophy and theology. And you say, the Bible says, the Bible says, but what do you know? How do you know what you believe? And I was 15 years old. I was sitting in the, in a couch in the back. And those words marked me because uh, that's what uh, inspired in me the desire to know more about God or this theology, which is the knowledge of, of God. So after uh, high school, I went to a Bible institute for a year then I went to college but I always had this desire to know more about God and that's what led me to go to seminary and I always thought originally that I will go to seminary get some more theological training and I will continue being a literature professor which is where I was at that time but uh, being in seminary that's what after after my first semester I realized that that's what, what I wanted to do is to know more about God and teach others about God. That. Uh, that's what led me on my journey to my uh, doctoral studies and to do what I do today, which is to be a, a seminar professor who teaches about God to others.
1: Yeah, thanks Dr. Skeda, for being here. Um, I'm really appreciative, yeah, that you're able to join us um, as you are my dissertation chair. And so, yeah, I just appreciate your wisdom coming alongside me in my journey as well. So um, yeah, we're so happy to have you. Um, Just going along with what you said in your story, can you talk more about the influence of Catholicism in Latin America?
2: Thank you, Grayson. It's always a a delight to to work and learn also from from you. Something historically interesting is that in, as you all know, 1492, that's when uh, finally uh, Columbus discovered America, but that's also the year when the kings of Spain were able to finally expel uh, the Muslims from this, the Spanish peninsula, and uh, united the country, and they did what every uh, winning king or kingdom does. They impose the language and their religion to others. So they were known as the Catholic kings. So the Catholicism became the official religion of the peninsula. Spanish, the official language, or uh, Castilian became Spanish, but also since they are the ones who sponsored Columbus, the new territories in Latin America became Catholic territories. So under the Pope's blessing, uh, that was the, uh, the the arrangement that they will be. Those territories also be will belong to the to the Pope in in, in, uh, in a significant way as Catholic territories. So that means that Roman Catholicism has been the uh, main and official religion in Latin American countries since the beginning of the colonization. Uh, It was not, for example, until in Mexico, 1857, when uh, we received freedom of religion. Until 1857, everybody was forced to be Roman Catholic. So uh, that's Catholicism, Uh, Roman Catholicism has been part of the, the culture and the tradition of, of these countries that obviously uh, that's not the case anymore as Protestantism has been growing and also secularization. But for many uh, people being a Roman Catholic and being a Mexican or any kind of a Latin American is very part of their culture.
0: So in, in the light of that, as, as Catholicism spreads throughout uh, Latin America, can you tell us a bit more about what happened subsequently in Spain in terms of the Spanish Reformation?
2: Yes. So what, what happened is you know, a way to enforce uh, the, the, the Spanish uh, kings and uh, the kingdom that Catholicism will remain as official religion and that the Jews and Muslims who remain in Spain were true converts basically they have the option of live, die or convert to Catholicism. Uh, the King and Queen of Spain established the Inquisition. The Inquisition was a way to make sure that all believers were true believers or so true converts. Uh, now, uh, an interesting uh, historical fact is that uh, Charles I from Spain, so the, the, one, the son of uh, Isabel and Fernando who was also Charles V. In the German Empire. So he's the king that uh, Luther faced when he, the at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And then they decided, he decided that they will not face the same situation in Spain and the colonies that they face in Germany and that was happening in other countries in Europe. So they used the Inquisition to protect, to isolate Spain from Lutherans or any Protestant uh, inference. So the uh, Spain and the colonies, they remained Catholics, uh, Catholic, Roman Catholic, uh, and were blind uh, protected from Lutherans and Protestants. Uh, and, and the Spanish Inquisition was a way to ensure that that would be the case, to create terror and fear among anybody who wanted to explore these ideas of Lutheranism.
1: Can you talk more about that pedagogy of fear? That this... Spanish used in the Spanish Inquisition, and I don't know, something that also struck me when um, I was reading one of your articles is how that pedagogy of fear actually kind of still exists in some ways, um, even like in Christian evangelical circles. So I was wondering if you could comment on that as well.
2: Yes, uh this This term uh, was used by uh, David Estrada uh, spanish scholars and uh, and others to to reflect the the strategy of the inquisition um, or it can be used by any religious uh, organization uh, as you mentioned, to make sure that people will not explore other ideas. so it was just a systematic uh, way to create fear uh, among others so the way the Inquisition worked in Spain was cruel, a cruel well to torture and kill uh, burn alive, those heretics. So this happened only a few times, and those, those times were enough to uh, create the fear that anybody would feel in order not to pursue those ideas. So uh, fear is a very important uh, motivator that, that was used and can be used even to this day to protect or to uh, incite others to action. What is interesting in, in this context is that there were some Spanish, Spanish people, Spaniards who became believers, became uh, Protestant on their own, uh, just like Luther to the reading of the scriptures. So oh, there was a Spanish reformation. There were some reformers. There's a little monastery outside of Seville, the Monastery of San Isidoro del Campo. When most of the monks, your own monks, who were working with the scriptures, they came to the same convictions like Luther that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. That the authorities of this in, in the Bible as the main authority for life and conduct, and they started uh, reading. Uh, one of them translated the Bible into Spanish. Uh, Casado de Reina, uh, he started translating the Bible into Spanish. But they, uh, they were this, had to free Spain because of the Inquisition. He finished translation in uh, 1569. That's the first full Spanish Bible from the originals. Another one of the monks, uh, Cipriano de Valera, he revised the, that translation. So to this day, the most common Spanish Bible translation in Protestant circles is the Reina Valera, and that's the origin. There were also another center of uh, Protestantism in Spain with uh, Constantino Ponce de la Fuente, for example. He was the main priest uh, and preacher at the Cathedral of Seville. He was a personal chaplain of Charles the Free, And he also became a believer. And in order to protect himself from the Inquisition, he started preaching expository sermons going uh, through the scriptures. but. Again, uh, they were discovered. Uh, Constantino Ponce uh, died uh, in prison before his uh, trial ended. And he he was uh, buried. Three months later, his, after the trial concluded, his remains were exhumated and burned at the stake. Uh, so the Spanish Reformation uh, that happened for, for a while, they, they was extinguished. Uh, and, Spain and the colonies, again, that's why they remain Roman Catholics for uh, hundreds of years. But they were true believers and Spanish believers uh, in Spain that that reached Latin America in different ways. And this is very significant because in in Spain, people assume that Protestantism is a foreign religion. In Latin America, they also, some people believe the same, or in Mexico, they would say that's a religion from the North Americans. But that's not true. They were Uh, Spanish-speaking believers who came to the same conclusions uh, like Luther. So even though Roman Catholicism is the main traditional religion, uh, Protestantism, so to speak, is also a Spanish Latin American faith.
0: Yeah, that's interesting to situate Protestantism within that kind of Spanish context like that. I'm wondering, as Pentecostalism eventually spreads and becomes dominant in Latin America, uh, if it was perceived as being under that umbrella of Protestantism or not?
2: Well, uh, Pentecostalism uh, is by far the fastest growing movement, uh, Christian movement in in Latin America. Uh, And that's a recent phenomenon. And I think uh, there are many reasons. Uh, One of them is that uh, Pentecostalism reflects the faith of the common people. This community the expression, this religious expression of of the common people uh, is very important uh, away from the uh, religious structures that uh, more mainline denominations or religious have. It's more freely, uh, provides a more freely expression of of the faith uh, and it permeates every segment of society. So, Uh, Pentecostalism has found a fertile fertile soil in Latin America and among Latinos, uh, also in the United States. So it has different branches, uh, as as we know, but this idea that we can relate directly to God through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, is very significant and very reflective of the Latin American uh, religious ethos. There, there was a movement on the. There's a Catholic charismatic movement that uh, as well. But uh, in general, all Protestants are in the same category. So they will, I don't think most Catholics would make a distinction between Pentecostals or traditional evangelicals. Sometimes uh, 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 an offensive nickname for Protestants would be called Allelujas. So Those are the, and that that reflects really the. the Pentecostal uh, flavor.
1: Uh, Dr. Esqueda, can you also talk to us more about some key aspects of Hispanic evangelical theology um, in, it, in the present day?
2: Sure. Uh, I think there are uh, obviously Latin America is broad and there are many differences. Uh, so it would not be fair to say that one element represents every, everything. But I think I can think about uh, four. Key uh, general aspects that represent Latin American theology, and I think that relates much to our previous conversation on Pentecostalism and the Latin American uh, personality uh, and and ethos. I think uh, one key element is that uh, theology is a communal process. Uh, uh, We use the phrase "in conjunto." The importance of community is so essential for not just the culture but also for the church that we don't know God or relate to God in an individual basis. It's always a communal process, a communal process with the family and a communal process with the church, and also a communal process with the, with the community in, in general. So theology is in, in, in conjunto, where we are gathering together, which does in conjunto means together uh, relate to God. So uh, uh, that would be a difference from North American theology when people say, do you want to accept Christ as your own personal savior? Now that's the whole individualistic aspect. And here is, we know Christ together uh, in, in conjunto. Uh, another uh, point that is perhaps the most uh, key characteristic of uh, evangelical Latin, America, Latin American theology is what is known as mission integral or holistic mission. And uh, That's a, a term that uh, René Padilla and Samuel Escobar and one of the Latin American theologians established. It just means that uh, we connect the Great Commission and the Great Commandment together. So uh, theology always has social implications. Theology is not just intellectual, it is practical and it is, it is social. So uh, a key example would be, for example, uh, the word justice that in, or is synonym with righteousness in, in, in both in Hebrew and in, in Greek. In, in the Reina Valera translation that I mentioned before, all we, almost all the time is translated as justice in the Old Testament. The King James almost always translates that word as righteousness. And I think that reflects the worldview. Righteousness uh, can be piety. And uh, we read the Bible and think with personal piety. You read the Bible in Spanish and it's justice and justice is always social. So this term, for example, that uh, some people find controversial here in the United States, social justice, is an oxymoron. Justice is always social, always has these implications. Uh, And that's very important, that that's part of living our faith in a more holistic way. So my faith is not only for church on Sundays, is my faith is uh, daily life faith in lo cotidiano. That's another another common phrase in the uh, normal daily life living. That's where I live my, my faith. Uh, so the word compartmentalization, I, I even ask, for example, uh, students from different parts of the world, how do you translate that word in your language? And most people have a hard time to do it because they don't have that term, which is very common here also in North America and, white or Western theology, you fragment life. So that would be another one, mission integral. Life is always uh, together, holistic. Uh, Perhaps another key element that uh, Latin American theology also relates with perhaps with Asian American theology and African American theology, is the uh, the belief that theology always provides hope. Uh, The acknowledgement that this life the present life represents a lot of struggles, that life is not the way it's supposed to be, that, that there's a, the presence of lament. Uh, but not. we don't stay with lament, we live life with hope. So mañana, which means tomorrow, it's also a common term. You know, Justo Gonzalez, a uh, famous Latin American theologian, he has one book called Theolo- Mañana, Hispanic Theology, and that was the term he used. That we live now in, with the present struggles, but hope for a better day, for a better future. Uh, If I may, I can tell you a little story about this situation. Uh, Years ago, about 20 years ago, I uh, I went to Cuba. I ended up doing my dissertation about the logical education in Cuba. So I went like 13 times to Cuba. And that was my first time, my first trip to Cuba. And I went to a little town called Meya in the Eastern part of Cuba, extremely poor. That's one of the poorest places I have ever been because the town had a sugar cane factory uh, that was closed because of, it was uh, at one point it was easier to import sugar from the Soviet Union than to produce sugar. So that town didn't have any economic activity. When the Soviet Union collapsed, there was nothing to produce there. And I went to the church. Uh, and again, extremely poor uh, church, but I m- have never been able to forget that church service, those worship experience, that worship experience has really one of the best in my life because uh, so we were singing to God there. They have two maracas and one guitar for, with four strings, and they were singing a, a song that said, "There is a house better than my house that God is preparing for me, and I cannot wait to go there." So they they said uh, in John 14, Jesus said, "I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you." And they are thinking, I live in extreme poverty, but Jesus has been preparing a place for me for 2,000 years. I cannot wait to go there. So they were living with hope and joy and, uh, at the present time and w- with lament, but also with the expectation of the future. So that, that combination of the acknowledgement of lament. So you don't pretend that life is okay. You know his life is hard, but you know that God is good. I think that that's a, a key characteristic of uh, Latin American theology. Uh, and the other one uh, that we mentioned a little bit before is that we do theology from the margins, uh, especially Hispanic um, evangelical theology. In Latin America, because of the main religion is Roman Catholicism, so evangelicals or Protestants, which by the way, in Latin America are synonyms, evangelicals and Protestants are synonyms. So the term evangelical does not have the connotation that it has in the United States, uh, are the minority. So you are the only one. So I remember my case. I was the only evangelical in high school, the only evangelical who went to college. Uh, So that was also from the margins. Um, And then when you come to the United States, and uh, We bring these ideas, social ideas or implications, but I'm in a predominantly white institution. We're also on the, on, the, on the margin. So I became the first uh, Mexican-born professor uh, at Southwestern Seminary uh, and I became the first Mexican-born professor at Talbot Seminary. And so when we want to bring these issues, now the conversation in our society becomes between liberals and conservatives and these dichotomies and, Evangelicals are mainline, and we are kind of in the middle. I said, "Well, I am a conservative, but I also I think the my faith uh, directs me to have social implications. So uh, that's why I think what, uh, Robert Charles Romero recent book, Brown Church, is becoming so popular because it's representing the, the title is Brown Church. That we're in the middle. We are we're mixed. We're from the margins, uh, which perhaps." Gives opportunity or language to talk about brown churches, right? So that will be uh, four key key ideas. Uh, we can I can expand more on those if if you want. But in a general in general uh, general overview, will will cover these key elements.
0: Yeah, that was a really great overview. I loved what you shared. It was really compelling, and I especially loved what you had to share about that dynamic of how. Sedeq or Decausune or these different terms are translated into Spanish, and how this the, the Spanish reader reading their Bible is going to get a, a more of a connotation of justice. And I like what you said about how the oxymoronic nature of qualifying that with the word social before that and justice is always social. I really want to hear more about that, I, and I'm curious. I wonder if maybe from your vantage point, if you could talk with us about. Why do you think those who, let's say, aren't in the margins of majority culture struggle to take that, especially those from majority culture who are Christian, have a hard time thinking about the importance of social justice? As you rightly said, it should not need that qualifier. But why do those in majority culture struggle so much with that?
2: Well, I think one of the elements of being in the majority is that, uh, the majority culture enjoys what now has become a common word, privilege. Uh, what privilege means is that you don't have to think about others. You assume that you are always a standard. So uh, I think I, I can appreciate that in, in a unique way because since I was born and raised in another country, uh, I never thought about myself as the minority or majority. I was part of the majority culture uh, living in Mexico but I kind of a joke that when in 1998, when I came to the United States and the plane crossed the border, something magical happened that I became a Hispanic, which is a term that is only used in the United States. So I landed as a Hispanic and a minority. And now uh, I was on the margins, which I never thought about it. Uh, And I think that people in the majority culture, they assume they are culture free. Uh, I I think this is an important issue when we talk about cultures. Uh, We we can talk about Latin American culture, Asian American cultures, African Americans. But in this country, uh, the white culture, they assume white is not a color. Uh, That's why I don't really like the term people of color, because white is a color. Everybody has colors. But in, in theology and in seminary, we assume that we are culture free. So for example, a a seminary or theological institution can have or develop a Hispanic theology program, but they don't call white middle-class theology program the other programs. They just call it master of divinity. It is assuming that we don't have a culture. So they always perceive the others as suspicious, as not the standard. Uh, But if we recognize that we all are individuals and our culture and background informs our theology, then we can learn from each other. So I think uh, just to go back to uh, your question, it may people don't see their other perspectives, either because of ignorance or pride. Pride is that I'm correct, I'm right. And the other ones is like interesting. It's like, if I'm going to the zoo and I appreciate the different animals and species there, but I'm not one of them, I'm outside. Uh, but if you think, well, I'm one of them, we all are in the same space, which, by the way, is a theological principle. We all have the Holy Spirit. We are one body. Uh, we don't, want, we don't uh, make diversity the goal. The body is diverse, God's body is diverse. So we just need to acknowledge the diversity that God is giving us. So I think it, uh, in order to have good theology, you need to be humble, you, know? you need to be uh, teachable. Uh, to receive the gift of the Spirit from others as well.
1: Yeah, I really like how you mentioned um, the necessity to uh, see the body as diverse and how we all have unique perspectives um, to bring to the conversation. Can you also talk more about how the Holy Spirit works in that process? I know you had written a book called Anointed Teaching, um, which talks more about that. Uh, Would you be able to talk about your book?
2: Give you first a little bit the background of the book, uh, which is I think represents uh Latin American and uh, Hispanic theology. Uh Robert pasmino who is a very well-known Christian educator, uh, he became one of my mentors uh, many years ago, almost 20 years ago, when I was starting my journey as a theological educator. Uh, he was planning to write the third and final book of, of a tri- triology on the Trinity and teaching and education. He had a book on God the Father, a book on the Son, on Jesus. And uh, he was planning to write this book, Anointing Teaching, Partnership with the Holy Spirit. As uh, so I was one day in conversation with him and I asked him about his next project, he, he told me about the idea of the book. And then he looked at me and said, you know, I'm thinking about working in partnership with a book that is called Partnership with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Would you like to partner with me? So he invited me to to collaborate with him in in the book. Uh, And I think that was a way for him to pass on the baton to involve others in the journey. Uh, And the key difference from this book and others, like I had written about the Holy Spirit before and teaching, is the social implications, is that When we receive the Holy Spirit, not only individually, because most of the works on the uh, Holy Spirit, they relate about the individual believer and the relationship with God. But what we explore here is that the communal expression and the communal gift of the Spirit. But the Bible says that when the Spirit comes, there is freedom. So what does that mean to have freedom in the Spirit? But not just for me, but for all of us. As the body of Christ, we experience this freedom. And that's freedom to live a life for him communally. Then the second uh, part of the book is are the virtues of the spirit. So, so again, we always have a tendency, especially in this context, to read the fruit of the spirit, uh, and we think about in my the fruit of the spirit in me. So love, patience, and so on, kindness. But we forget that the fruit of the spirit is for us. So we use the illustration of in in the, in the Lord's supper, the Eucharist, when we are together at a table, all with the Holy Spirit. So how do we live those Christian virtues together? Because the Holy Spirit is for all of us. And then the final part of the book is the uh, sustenance that we receive from the Holy Spirit. And again, corporate, communal sustenance, and then individual sustenance. So this is not a book even though it's a book on Christian education or a book on Christian teaching, it's not necessarily a book for, only for teachers. I think it's a book for all believers. Uh, and the main emphasis is the communal aspect. All of us receiving the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? What does it mean to be free in the Spirit? How does it mean to live in the Spirit uh, together? Uh, so this, again, the communal aspect is so important. Uh, one thing, I, 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 another way to to say this is I think we have a, a little mistake. It may seem sound like a, a nuance, but it's important. Here in, in our Western majority culture perspectives, we think we're individuals, which is true, but then we're we also part of the body. So when we think about in ecclesiology, I'm a believer, I accept Christ, receive the, the gift of the Spirit, and I'm also part of the body, but the communal aspect seems secondary. Like, well, I have so I express that to small groups or go to church. But I can relate well with God individually, and the other one is secondary. But the Bible, I think, goes or, or gives this idea the other way around. We are part of the body, and then in, within that body, we are members of the body. So we are communal. We are part of the body of Christ, and also we have our individuality. So those are important, but the most the defining element is the community. We all have the Holy Spirit. We are one body of Christ. And then we are individual. Uh, and here will be a difference where, in the majority culture, in a very extreme individualistic culture, they stress the individual and uh, forget the communal. And I think the Bible starts with the communal and then continues with the individual. So that's part of the, uh, the work of partnership with the Holy Spirit that not only is something. Uh, that we do on our own, but a gift we receive from God. So, which would be another difference. Uh, sometimes we think, well, this is my ministry, my calling, my teaching, whatever I do for God, and then I invite God to bless me or to direct my efforts. But that's, I don't think that's uh, the appropriate perspective. It's God who is working. God does not need me. God is building his church but he invites me to partner with him. So partnership with the Holy Spirit is more than inviting God to work with me, is actually receiving or accepting the invitation from God to join him in his ways. Obviously that requires humility, a sense of awe and a humbleness that the God of the universe will invite us to participate in his work. that that's that's those are the general ideas of of the book and i think how it connects with a different perspective uh not different because it's unique it's just how our communal aspect uh, and culture affects or directs our understanding of uh the the life of under the spirit's guidance
0: yeah that communal dynamic is really important thanks for sharing that with us and and in our context here in America, it's so hyper-individualized, so we need to hear that message over and over again. I wonder, though, given that the book is called Anointed Teaching and it's about pedagogy, if you could tell us a little bit about how this affects your your teaching and how it affects, especially since um, you, you direct some educational programs and you are an expert in higher education, if you could tell us a bit about how some of the things that we've talked about today uh, with Latin American Pentecostalism and the Spanish Reformation, how some of these things apply to the task of education?
2: Well, I, I think uh, the central element of everything is that the triumph God which lives in community is the foundation of everything that exists. So as we are created in God's image, we are created for community, and we are created to reflect and represent the God of the universe on this earth or as the New Testament uses expression, we're Christ's ambassadors. So we're representing Christ. So I think this is a foundational element that applies to everything we do. Uh, A common phrase uh, I use in in my classes when we talk about like in a Christian university, what makes a Christian university Christian is integration of faith and learning. And we just say, well, the, the Lord of salvation is also the God of creation. So God is present, in everything, everything is theological, and we are just discovering God. So, doing research is an act of worship; it's an act of discovering God's fingerprints in creation, in the world. So that that's uh, an important element. The other one is that, uh, as I mentioned before, that we respond to God's calling in faith to partner with Him. So it's God working in us. So complete dependence on the Spirit is crucial. Uh, and this awareness that there's something bigger than ourselves. So I'm not educating people for, for me. We are all disciples of Christ. So there's something bigger than ourselves. So the dynamic between teacher and student changes a little bit because we all are disciples of Christ. So uh, I'm a guide of others and also a learner. I think a fellow learner with others because if everybody has the Holy Spirit, we all can learn from each other. So one of the things I particularly enjoy in my uh, teaching ministry is that in this we have doctoral seminars with a very diverse group of students from all over the world. So I don't see myself as a teacher, the source of knowledge. Where I'm just the facilitator. Of what is learning with alongside the students? So we are all learning together. And We uh, a common phrase we use in, in the doctoral program is that we want to be teachers are doctors of the church. So you get a a doctorate, but not just for yourself, but to serve others, to serve the church. So that's a way to emphasize the communal aspect. I think that we all are uh, together. Uh, And if God is the Lord of creation and the Lord of salvation and everything is theological and discovering God is the main goal of life. Uh, we need to be very rigorous, so the academic research is, is very important. We want to know more about that. Uh, but also, we want to stand for truth. Uh, truth is an important element, and I think we have seen this now in our society with all these conspiracy theories and people believe whatever they want that uh, it is a complete distortion of, of God. So one chapter in, in the book is the spirit We have freedom for truth. And for me, that uh, was a revolutionary thought because God is the truth. God, the Father, is truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Uh, and even the, the Bible says that Satan is the father of lies and falsehood. So this idea of truth and lies is a spiritual one. So when we stand for truth, we are representing God. When we stand for a conspiracy theory of falsehood, we're representing Satan. So in Proverbs 6, for example, we have a list of the sins that God hates. And interestingly, in that list, there are seven. Uh, I will invite everybody to go to that list on Proverbs 6, because it doesn't have the sins that we assume now that are the worst sins. But lying or falsehood is repeated twice. And you think, why? Why does God hate falsehood so much? Well, it's because he's the truth. It completely goes against his character. Uh, You go through the list of sins in in Romans 1 or even in Revelation, uh, the end of the Bible, the last scene describing the Bible is lies. Uh, It completely goes against uh, God. So, part of my uh, goal now, going back to my teaching ministry, we we are working a doctoral program. We're trying to discover truth, but we also remain humble that even though God is the source of truth, I'm not, so I need to be very humble and very careful about the claims I make. So if if I make a claim, I need to be careful, provide support. And also, understand that we're in this journey together, I'm growing the knowledge of God. Uh, So I I cannot be dogmatic. I think that that's, that's my point. Or uh, 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 a Christian, dogmatic Christianity, I don't think represents the Holy Spirit well. Uh, or this idea that I know everything and and others just come to learn from me that does not represent true and authentic Christian education. We're in this journey uh, growing uh, in the knowledge of God. We remain humble. So God is the truth, but I'm not God. And I don't relate to God on my own. I need others. So Other perspectives are welcome uh, and received. That doesn't mean that every perspective is valid, but all perspectives are welcome. Uh, I think that that's part of the, the dignity of all human beings, created in God's image. So those will be some uh, some principles that uh, I think connect with uh, my journey of how I see my role as a, as an educator, uh, a guide to know, uh, to to guide others towards God, but also a fellow companion in that journey.
1: I thanks, Dr. Skidda, for um, just being an example of that humility and openness, um, even as I've seen in your classes, uh, just your willingness to learn from your students um, is really encouraging and has been really um, empowering to me as well. And just uh, having that space of um, communal learning from one another, I think is so important, um, especially in our current climate um, and in our present day, just having that sense of community and connectedness and openness and willingness to learn, I think um, is so important to build bridges um, and to becoming more unified, um, especially in a time which is so polarized, even in our churches, you know, we all have such different opinions and end up falling on like one end of the spectrum or the other. So I think that yeah, that connectedness and openness to dialogue is so important. So thank you for sharing about that.
2: Yes, uh, you're welcome. I think that a common cultural characteristics here in in, in our Western world uh, that is represented by the majority culture, that pe- people there are not aware of it is that they, we are forced to think in dichotomies. You know, the good, the bad, the uh, hero, the villain, the liberal, the conservative, And we try to put Everything in categories, we forget that there's actually a spectrum of ideas and position, and, uh, and we are in this journey le- learning uh, from God. So there are certain aspects that should be uh, unifiers. So we are we have a list of virtues and, and vices and sins, and those are the ones we need to be clear about. There are not two perspectives about sin, or or two perspectives about virtues. There's one that is but within that then we can come up with dif- differences of opinion and perspectives about how to achieve uh, those virtues or how to avoid those sins uh, so i think sometimes in this culture we confuse but it's quite mean to follow christ with other social or political perspectives and that creates that polarization that it's sad and many believers follow into those traps as well
0: Thanks so much for joining us today, Doctor Escada. Really appreciated all that you had to share with us about hope and community and justice from a Latin American perspective, and th- also thinking about it as it relates to uh, the broader church and Christian education. Really appreciate having you on today.
2: You're welcome. Uh, it was it's been such a delight to be with all of you. Thank you for so much for the invitation.